We are uh, in a series through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and uh, this is actually message 48. Uh, so, if, as I said last week, if you missed any of this, you can go back and catch up on the first 47 messages. Um, and you can do that online at mylpclacy.com. You can listen to every message, uh, I think, that we've done in years and years. And uh, you can also download messages to your own uh, device uh, so that you can carry it through the day. We are, uh, as I mentioned, uh, 48th message. Next week is the 49th and the final message in the series. Can hardly believe that here we are. Um, I thought about extending it to 50 just for good, just for good, a good round number, but I think we're going to be done next week. And uh, I hope that this has been a valuable series for you and it's been helpful to you in your walk. Uh, Romans is just a, an amazing, an amazing book. And, and honestly, I was kind of intimidated just to even enter into it because uh, I didn't want to mess it up. So I hope that I haven't done too bad a job and that uh, God has spoken to you through this. Uh, normally, it's our tradition here at LifePoint to stand and read our scripture together. I'm not going to ask you to do that this morning. And, and the reason is that this passage is full of hard-to-pronounce names. And... <laughs> And I just don't want to subject that, subject you to that. And so uh, if you will uh, just follow along as I read. And by the way, I hope you have a Bible open in front of you. There are some Bibles on the aisle. Some of you have Bibles on your, your uh, iPads and your cell phones and things like that. And so uh, either open your Bible or turn it on. Uh, Romans 16, 1 through 16. Follow along as I read, and it will also be on the screen. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sencria that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first to convert to Christ in Asia, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is God's word. It's an unusual text, isn't it? And it's one of those texts that, that you might be tempted to just kind of skip over because you just say to yourself, well, he's just saying, he's just doing his final greetings, and he's, he's about done, and so let's get to the good stuff. Um, so we could, we could skip it, we could gloss over it, we could ignore it, but that would be, I think, 
a real mistake. Uh, One of the early fathers of the church, John Chrysostom, uh, wrote this. I think that many, even of those who have the appearance of being extremely good men, hasten over this part of the epistle as superfluous. And yet the gold founders people, which I, by which I think he means gold miners, are careful even about the little fragments. It is possible, even from bare names, to find a great treasure. And so we're going we're gonna to lean into this. And, and I've, I've kind of spent my week um, with this passage. And one of the things I've observed about it is that Paul's tone, first of all, toward the believers in Rome is warm, it's personal, and it's affirming. Warm, personal, and affirming. Emil Bruner, in his commentary on Romans, said this about this passage. Romans 16 is one of the most instructive chapters of the New Testament because it encourages personal relationships of love in the church. One of the thoughts that occurred to me as I was studying this this week was that it it's kind of reminds me of a, a, a church directory, like a pictorial church directory. Have you guys ever seen those pictorial church directories? I, I don't know if people still do that or not, but, but I have a collection of them from churches that I've been a part of in the past, and I, I pulled one out the other day just for fun and was... Uh, was looking at it. And you know, as I, as I leafed through the pages and I'm seeing these pictures, I'm seeing people who are great, you know, leaders in the faith, real models, you know, faithful servants, mature people, teachers, pastors, um, great people. I'm also seeing some who, in my humble opinion, were just knuckleheads, you know, and, and, and you kind of go, well, love that guy from a distance. And <laughs> And I'm seeing people who were youth workers and Sunday school teachers and faithful nursery workers, people who made a significant contribution. Some of them are with the Lord now, some pictures I was seeing of people that have gone on. And it was encouraging and it was, uh, it was great. And so as I related that to this passage, it struck me that every person has a name. Every person that's listed here, every every person that receives Paul's greetings has a story. Uh, A story of faith, a story of encounter with Christ. Every one of them had a relationship with Christ. And we can assume that like most churches, they were at various stages of spiritual maturity. Now, each of them, because of the fact that, they're, that they receive greetings because not everyone in the whole church was listed in this. But the ones that are listed, we can presume, were, were making a unique and valuable contribution to the life of their church. Uh, most of these people are not named anywhere else in the Bible. There's only one or two that are named anywhere else in, in, in the New Testament um, or, or in any other written history as far as I know. Ten of the of the 25 uh, are, are individuals whom Paul knew previously, with whom he had a prior relationship. Four times he refers to someone as my beloved, as uh, J. Vernon McGee. Any of you know that name? 
That's his constant expression, my beloved. This tone of warm personal affirmation is set in verses 1 and 2 by his introduction of this woman named Phoebe. And I like Phoebe right off the bat because that was my grandmother's name. But uh, Phoebe was most likely the person here who was entrusted with carrying this letter that we've spent 48 weeks studying uh, from Corinth to Rome. And in these first two verses, he informs them of, of Phoebe's bona fides as kind of a brief resume. And first and foremost, he wants them to know that Phoebe is a sister in the Lord. Uh, she's one of us. He refers to, as a, her, to her as a diaconon of the church in Sencria, uh, a port city that was just a few miles southeast of Corinth. A diaconon is, is a word that means servant. It's also the root word from which we get uh, the title for the office of deacon in the church. And whether she held an office in the church in Sencria or was simply known as a faithful servant of the Lord in that church is unclear, but, but it is clear that Paul held her in high esteem. In verse 2, he says that she has been the benefactor, benefactoress of many people, including Paul himself, meaning that she had provided financial and material support to his mission at a higher than average level. And so he asks them to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from them. And like that word that we've seen the past couple of weeks, the word welcome, uh, there is in this Greek word that's translated receive, the clear implication of a very high level of personal engagement, of a personal relationship, of personal warmth. Paul adds that their reception of Phoebe should reflect the fact of who she is, a sister in Christ, a servant, a material and financial supporter of the advancement of the gospel, they should consider her to be one of them. Most importantly, their welcome of Phoebe, and, and don't miss this, and this is, the, this is the, one of the gems here, their welcome of Phoebe should be extended in a manner worthy of the Lord's people. Worthy of the Lord's people. And I, and I love this. Why do we work hard at welcoming people here at LifePoint Church? Um, why do why do we go into such go to such effort uh, to help them have a good experience here? It's because of who they are, first of all, and what Christ might be doing in their life, or what, my Christ, what Christ might be about to do in their life, because they've come through our doors. But it's also, and I think perhaps even more importantly, and this is where Paul goes with this because of who we are. He says, welcome her in a manner worthy of the Lord's people. We are the people of the Lord. We welcome others because Christ first welcomed us, and, and, and now we're his representatives to the, to the rest of the body of Christ and to the world, so that everyone who comes through our doors should be warmly welcomed and feel highly valued because they are. Because they are. From verse 3 to verse 15, Paul sends greetings to a variety of people in the church there. And I, I get the sense from these greetings that, that Paul's purpose was to kind of establish some inroads with the Roman church. 
uh, in general. He'd never been to Rome. He didn't plant the church in Rome, but he intended to get to Rome uh, in the not-too-distant future, and he hoped to receive a warm welcome from them when when he eventually arrived. We might nevertheless ask the question of how it was that Paul did, in fact, know so many people in the church in Rome. Part of the answer is that travel was more common in those days than we usually think. Uh, Travel by sea on the Mediterranean was common, and really because of the extensive system of roads built by the the Roman Empire, an unprecedented network of of roads, uh, travel by land was made much easier. So people got around. Paul's close friends, Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila, who are the first in line for greetings, are a case in point. Aquila came from Pontus, which is on the southern shore of the Black Sea, uh, to the north. He and his wife Priscilla lived in Italy until, until the emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome in A.D. 49. Uh, They moved from Rome to Corinth in Greece, where Paul first met them. He he stayed with them there. Uh, Their occupation, like Paul's, was making tents, and so they worked together. We know that they traveled with him to Ephesus in the Roman province of Asia, where he ran into some very violent resistance. And this may very well have been, we don't know, but it may very well have been where it was that they risked their own lives for him, as he says in verse 4. The ESV translated, they, translates it that they risked their necks for him. And I always thought that was just kind of a slang expression. I, I looked that up in, 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 the, in the Greek language, and, and it liter- literally means that they laid down their necks for him, which sounds like a guillotine kind of situation to me. But that's, they didn't die, just so you know. But... Uh, they, they risked their lives for Paul. It's probable that sometime then after the emperor Claudius died, which we think was about A.D. 54, that they returned to Rome. And now Paul indicates that Priscilla and Aquila had a house church meeting in their own home. So they're pastors. They were the ones who took uh, the aspiring young teacher Apollos aside and, and helped him understand some things that he didn't yet understand. And so they were spiritual mentors of uh, many people. And it isn't hard to imagine that along the way, Paul might have met and evangelized a a number of Jews from Rome who had fled as Priscilla and Aquila did and had now returned and were part of the church. You'll be glad to know that I'm not going to talk at length about every one of these people on the list. We'd be here all day. But but bear with me for just a few more. Notice verse 5. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. And I love this, because when you begin any missionary enterprise, um, you never forget the first person to trust in Christ through your efforts. You just never forget. And Paul says that Eponidas was the first convert to Christ in the Roman province of Asia, which if you can imagine in your mind, the northern Mediterranean and in western Turkey. And for that reason, Eponidas would always be very special to Paul. I know that's true because a woman named Kelly Alkire was the first to trust in Christ through the ministry of LifePoint Church. Uh, she'd been intending for a short time, and she asked if I could meet with her. She had some questions, and 
I met with her over at Starbucks over there by Ramblin' Jacks, and uh, that day she received Christ right there in the coffee shop. And Kelly will always hold a special place in my heart. Finally, uh, notice Andronicus and Junia, another married couple in verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So here, here were a couple of uh, Jewish believers in Jesus, a married couple, with whom Paul had shared a jail cell at some point. And we don't, again, know where that was or what particular occasion. But you never forget those who have suffered alongside you for the sake of the gospel. Now, those of you who have been in the military and been in combat, you, you, you never forget those who, who had your back uh, in the struggle, in the fight. Uh, I've never been in jail. You'd be glad to know that. But, but I've served, and, and yes, I've suffered in, at some small level and struggled alongside others in the ministry, alongside other faithful men and women. There's a bond that's forged when you serve together, when you struggle together through something that's difficult. And uh, some of you know that here at LifePoint. Uh, as you've served together. There's a bond that's forged that will never, ever break. And what I really want you to see this morning in all of this is what kind of people were part of the church in Rome. Because the kind of people in the church determine the kind of church at large. It is. It was. The image that Paul presents of the church in Rome is one of unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. You know, the world today wants us to embrace diversity, doesn't it? I mean, at every turn we're hearing about diversity in politics and education and uh, seemingly every um, context. But But the one thing that the world can't give us is a roadmap to unity. What we're left with in embracing diversity as the world would like us to is not unity, but a stultifying demand of conformity. Conformity to an ideology, conformity to a particular worldview. It's really not unity in diversity. And it ends up not even being diversity because of the demand for conformity. And I really believe that it is only in the church of Jesus Christ that we see and we experience the real potential of unity in diversity. Because the source of our unity is a transcendent source. Uh, We come together in Christ. Each of us individually in Christ. And he in us and the Holy Spirit comes and glues us together, as it were. Spiritual superglue. In spite of our diversity, in spite of the radical differences between us, he makes us one. The Roman church was a diverse church. And we see, first of all, a diversity of race in the church in Rome. Most of the names we encounter in Romans 16 are Greek in origin, uh, though several are Latin. And even those whom Paul identifies as Jews bear Greek or Latin names. 
The Church of Jesus Christ is by definition an international and interracial church. Paul wrote to the church in Colossae regarding this dynamic. He said, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all. Christ is all and in all. In John's vision of heaven recorded in the book of Revelation, he saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well, if that's the way it's going to be in heaven, shouldn't we start practicing now? Shouldn't we come to terms with those realities now? Someone once wrote that Sunday morning between 9 and noon are the most segregated hours of the week in America. And when you think about it, it would be the most natural thing, kind of the expected thing, that the Jewish Christians, for Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians, for black Christians or white Christians, for Hispanic Christians or Asian Christians, to want to uh, meet and worship and fellowship together with their own people. For all the obvious reasons. But to foster ethnic or racial segregation in the church would be entirely incompatible with Paul's sustained argument in Romans 14 and 15 and with the way he brings it to a climax. How could the church members welcome one another, embrace each other, include each other, take each other to heart? How could they welcome one another and with one heart and voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ if they worshipped in ethnically segregated congregations? Now that kind of arrangement contradicts entirely the unity in diversity that Paul repeatedly taught, repeatedly urged in the church. The church Jesus is forming, the bride that he is preparing, is racially and ethnically diverse. Racially and ethnically heterogeneous. Someone recently asked of our pastors and elders whether the congregation of LifePoint Church fully reflects the racial and eth- uh, ethnic demographics of Thurston County. Kind of a probing question. It's a good question. It's one we need to take to heart. Secondly, we see in the church in Rome a diversity of social status. Social status. You have to read somewhat deeply to discern this, but some of the names listed were names that tended to be common among slaves. And on the other hand, some of the names listed, like the household of Aristobulus, the household of Narcissus and Herodian, indicate a probable direct relationship to aristocracy, to political power. So the church in Rome, like the church today should be, was diverse socially. There are people of high social status, People of low social status and everything in between. Next, there's an obvious diversity of gender in this list. 
of the 24 people who were personally named, personally greeted, eight of them are women, 16 are men. Paul's sometimes wrongly accused of being a male chauvinist. And I think it is a wrong accusation of of subjugating women, of, of oppressing women. But notice the high regard with which he writes of Phoebe. Um, and of the women to whom he sent greetings. There's respect, there's admiration, there's affirmation. He expresses high regard and love for the important role each one was playing in the life of the church and, and as a result in the advance of the gospel. We can also observe here a diversity of life experience. Slaves, noblemen, married couples, extended families, A son and his mother, his name was Rufus, like that. Marcy has a cousin named Rufus. I always think of Chaka Khan when I hear Rufus. There's a set of twins here, Tryphena and Tryphosa, uh, whose names meant dainty and delicate. Isn't that great? Some who had suffered significant trauma for the sake of Christ. It's just a a broad range of life experience. There's also the matter of diversity of spiritual experience and and spiritual maturity. Uh, Some on this list were pastors. Some were missionaries. Some had been Christians a, a short time. Some had been Christians a long time. What is obvious is that in their diversity, the Roman church was also a unified church. I'm not suggesting at all that the Roman church was a perfect church. But there's a great deal we can learn here, we can gain as we examine this passage. Their unity was in the Lord. In the Lord. Six times Paul uses that phrase to describe individuals and couples in this passage. Four times he uses the phrase in Christ. What does it mean to be in the Lord? What does it mean to be in Christ? Let me... Let me just give you a very clear and simple understanding of these phrases. Someone who is in the Lord or in Christ is a Christian. A Christian. To be in Christ is to be united with him in the closest possible personal relationship. To be in Christ is to have Christ living in you. In the parable of the vine and branches in John 15, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What does it mean to abide? It means just to hang out. What do branches do? They don't do a lot, at least not on the surface, right? But they grow and they deliver sap to the tip of the branch and they bear fruit. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed for all who believed in him, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. In 1 John 3, the aged apostle talked about the foundation of our unity, that which we have seen and heard of Christ, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The center of fellowship in the church is fellowship with Christ. That's where it all begins. Uh, We will not experience genuine fellowship apart from Christ. Christ. 
Notice also that their unity transcended their diversity. Their unity transcended their diversity. Remember one of those two benedictions that we saw last week in chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Their unity was expressed also in sacrificial servanthood. And again, he began with Phoebe, who was a servant of the church as Sencria, apparently a, a woman who possessed significant resources and who was willing to share them material resources, financial resources, for the work of the gospel. And then there were Priscilla and Aquila, personal friends, co-workers who risked their own lives for Paul and his missionary work. He writes of Mary and Persis, Tryphena and Tryphosa, four women whom he says, worked hard for you, worked hard for you in the Lord. And, And that expression Paul uses there means to labor to the point of exhaustion, to labor to the point of depletion. And what he's saying of Mary and Persis and Tryphena and Tryphosa is that they gave everything they had in adva- to advance the gospel. He writes of Andronicus and Junia, with whom he once shared a jail cell for the sake of the gospel. He mentions Urbanus and describes him as our fellow worker. The, the word he uses there is sunergon, a word from which we get our word synergy or Synergist or synergism. Synergy occurs when when the work of two agents or two people produce a, a combined effect that's greater than the sum of their separate efforts. And Urbanus came along and, and made the work of others better. He made the work of others more effective. And the kingdom of God needs lots of people like Urbanus. Their unity was demonstrated finally in a commitment to community. In a commitment to to community. You know, for 48 weeks I've been speaking of the church in Rome in the singular as if there were one. The reality is that the church in Rome was made up of, made up of a multiplicity of house churches. Paul mentions three of them in this passage in verse 5. Paul sent greetings not only to Priscilla and Aquila, but also to the church that met in their home. So behind these names is an entire church whose, whose names do not appear. In verse 14, he wrote, Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. And in verse 15, Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. So three house churches. Have you ever thought of your home group, your life group, as the church? You should. You should. It would change the way you think about it. I wonder if you've ever considered that the the visible, tangible unity of the church, the thing that the Holy Spirit is trying to do in us, requires of you a visible, tangible, practical commitment to community, to fellowship. What I mean by that is that you're not just a church attender. 
or just a church worker. It's possible to be both of those things, an attender and a worker, without any commitment to community. You can come and attend, and we're glad to have you here, but... You know, maybe you're one of those people that when it's over, man, you're out the door because Pastor Jim's going to say, hey, meet somebody you don't know, and you don't want that to happen. So you're, you're like gone. Nope, got some place to go. See ya. It's possible to, to, to knock yourself out working for the church and still not be in community. Still not be in any meaningful relationships. The real question is, are you a church belonger? Is that a word? I don't know. I don't care. Here's how I would define it. To be a belonger means you choose to become engaged in the life of the church by entering into a place of service and a place of deepening relationship. And here at LifePoint... Those places of deepening relationship, maybe a ministry team, maybe a life group, or a special interest group, or a men's or women's Bible study, or a mops group. What matters is that you make a choice to get beyond your fears, to get beyond your inhibitions, maybe beyond your skepticism or criticism. And move in the direction of a relationship in Christ with imperfect people like you. With sometimes irritating people like you. So here's the secret. Because the Roman believers in Jesus made a commitment to community, the Roman church was an influential church. They were an influential church. We're going to hear Paul say in verse 19 next week, your obedience is known to all. They had a reputation for being a church in Christ. They had a reputation for being a church that loved each other. Jesus said to his disciples, and he says to us today, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The mark of the Christian is visible, tangible love in a visible, tangible Christian community. The rest of what Jesus prayed for us in John 17, 21 is that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that so that the world may believe you have sent me. Why should the world believe our message? Jesus said the validating mark is this, that the world sees a supernatural, nevertheless practical love between believers. You know, it strikes me that the world will never remember the names of these faithful people in Rome. But the Christian church does, has, and will, because the Holy Spirit determined that their names be included as models for us. Each one lived 
had a life. Each one loved and served Christ, loved and served each other. And because they did, they made a difference in their community, in their generation, and they made a difference for eternity. And you and I are here today in at least some part because of the difference that they made. You ever think about that? That the people you're reading about, not just the prominent ones, but the obscure ones, uh, are the shoulders on whom you stand in Christ. That there have been millions that have gone before who have been faithful, and because of that, you had the opportunity one day to hear the gospel, and it changed your life. And you came to know Jesus personally. So let me ask you, who will be in Christ in coming generations because of the difference that you are making today, the choices you are making today? Will your children, will your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren be in Christ because of choices you made about your own life, the priorities that you follow. See, what the world is really looking for and, and has always looked for, I think, is that validation of the claims of Christ in a visible, tangible demonstration of love and unity in the church that flows out of us and overflows into the community and into the world in sacrificial, compassionate service. The ultimate key to gospel influence is the love of Christ, the supernatural unity of the Spirit being made visible among people who otherwise, on a human level, have no apparent reason to love each other and no apparent source of oneness. So we're moving soon to a new building in a new neighborhood with new opportunities for mission and ministry to meet new people. One chapter in the life of our church is about to close and we're about to turn the page to a whole new chapter. And here's what I'm going to ask of you. I'm asking you to to take seriously the unity of the church and your part in it. I'm asking you to make a conscious commitment to community. And again, what do I mean by that? I mean deepening relationships. Welcoming, receiving one another in all of with all of our warts and blemishes, but entering into deepening community. It takes a conscious choice. Our effectiveness for the gospel in the next chapter, as it has been in this chapter, our effectiveness in the advancement of the kingdom of God in Thurston County, in Olympia, Lacey, Tumwater, yes, Tonino and Bucota, Rainier, 
Yelm depends on it. Depends on that conscious choice that we would make. So will you join me in that? Will you join me in that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it speaks right down into our lives. Thank you for these people in Rome uh, whom Paul loved, whom Paul would come to know eventually, and and uh, each of them. Thank you for their faithfulness. And, and Lord, thank you that, uh, as will be true of us, the world doesn't remember them and the world won't long remember us. But they made conscious choices to advance the gospel so that coming generations would know Christ, that would receive forgiveness of their sins, newness of life, hope for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.